Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello and welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast, the comedy politics show that listeners regularly have to pause and find ways to drag it out longer than necessary because of significant differences. I'm Tiernan Duyeb and as Prime Minister and custard thrown at a stained beanbag Boris Johnson prepares to go to Brussels and see European Commission President and small smartly dressed lion Ursula von der Leyen for crunch meetings, I'm not sure how him trying to do a sit-up is going to impress anyone. Of all the fibs Boris Johnson has told in recent years, you know, the £350 million a week for the NHS, 40 new hospitals, promising he was wearing a condom, the idea that he could get Brexit done is definitely one of the biggest. It's depressing to note that the news at this point in the week is that there's still absolutely no news on Brexit, and instead, much like every other week for the past four years, all we know is that this is the final push, though we have no idea whether or not it will birth an incredible deal or just shit all over the possibility of one happening. Back when former Prime Minister and the only person alive with rigor mortis, Theresa May, said no deal is better than a bad deal, it was hard to comprehend that those would be the only two options that we'd actually be given, and she would still be wrong about which was best. Trust the Conservatives to spend four years working super hard just to make sure absolutely everyone will be disappointed. It's almost as if the entire exercise is a long-term project by the bad place, just to make sure that absolutely everyone gets tortured by it. EU negotiator and that person who's in every business conference Zoom call but no one knows who he is, Michel Barnier, and chief negotiator of Task Force Europe, which is the sort of title you'd expect to find on a plastic toy gun in a newsagent's, David Frost, have been meeting every day for weeks to butt heads about the same three issues neither have the authority to make a decision on. You almost start to wonder if they just like hanging out. Is this the Ross and Rachel of global trade negotiations? Well, it's definitely just as fucking annoying. There are still three main sticking points, not including all the ones in Johnson's trousers, and they are the same ones they've been for all of our lives. Fishing, because it directly affects David Frost's Mon Calamari family. Having a level playing field, because it's much harder to move goalposts if you have to lug them up a hill. And resolving disputes in case one side, and by one side I mean Britain, decides that rules are for chumps and, oh, we only broke them unintentionally or in a limited and specific way. Of course, there's also the still teeny, tiny problem of Northern Ireland and absolutely everyone who lives there and needs to survive. But, you know, hopefully if no one mentions it again, it'll just sort of disappear and end up being okay. 
Actually, that's not true. Uh, Michael Gove, who is used to ward away spirits, good and evil, met with European Commission Vice President and host of a game show only shown on weekday afternoons on a channel no one likes, Maros Sifkovic, and they decided that from January the 1st, checks would be imposed on goods crossing the Irish Sea from Britain to Northern Ireland, whether there's a deal or not. So that gives businesses 24 days to do trading agreements that would normally take 18 months. But the Cabinet Office have confirmed that there'll be no grace period, which I think is stupid as it's just going to annoy the religious population even more. Four in ten food suppliers have said they'd pause or reduce supplies to Northern Ireland because of the checks, but I'm sure it won't cause any problems with the Irish people if Britain just enforces a famine on them for the second time. They'll be used to it by now, right? Basically a tradition. The other actual big change is that the British government have said they'll drop the clauses from the internal market bill that would break international law if a deal with the EU is done. Have they ever negotiated anything before? If you don't cooperate, we'll break the law and make things worse for ourselves. What kind of a tactic is that? Can you imagine if they were in charge of a hostage situation? OK, release the hostage or we'll stand out here and make our trousers fall down in front of everyone so they can point and laugh at our minute penises. You don't want to mess with us. Maybe that's the sort of thing you're indoctrinated into from a childhood at boarding school. That humiliating yourself is a winning tactic and that actually by letting the older boys towel whip you, it means you're definitely the one in charge. So now Boris Johnson is heading to Brussels and that could help decide things if the EU act like I would and do anything to make him go away again. Oh yeah, have what you like Boris, take all those biscuits if you need, just do it on your way out, yeah? And leave a window open, yeah? Maybe even five. Thanks, thanks, bye! But there is still a lot of rallying from Conservative MPs that a no deal is the best way forward, even though a leaked 34-page report showed an assessment of the risks that could involve. Among other things, it included a medicine shortage, a food shortage, price rises for food and fuel, border delays, fishing people fighting other fishing people like a low-budget and somehow worse water world, and councils falling into financial collapse. There are also worries about protests, but luckily we'll be in lockdown 3, 4 and 5 for most of next year, so that'll stop those from happening. The report says it's not an extreme or worst-case scenario, which makes you wonder what it needs to be for that to be the case. A hell-mouth opening? An alien invasion? Michael Gove doing another rap? Even with that report being released, what happens when you leave a tissue in your trouser pocket and pop it in the washing machine and former Brexit secretary, if you're allowed to have a title for a job you never bothered turning up to, David Davis, still insists there is nothing to fear from a no deal. Well, of course he's not scared. In the same way, my daughter isn't scared of strange matter because she has absolutely no concept of what it is. David Davis spent all those meetings in the EU without any notes and kept saying things like Michelle Barnier was very French, which probably just meant he once said it was deja vu when Davis turned up to a meeting clueless about what he was doing again and again. Other MPs, including Veruca, Ian Duncan-Smith, told the Commons that we must have a sovereign departure. What is that? What, we have full power over our leaving? Well, I guess we do, but no one on our side knows where the exit is, and unless the EU shows us some options, we're just going to fall out of the window with Duncan-Smith yelling, I did this by myself, on the way down. The fact is, the Conservatives have never really known what the plus side of a no-deal Brexit would mean for most of the country, so they've had to make up a lot of words to disguise their possible excitement at getting to see poor people unable to eat. It's why co-chairman of the party, and like someone hit a cake with a pan, James Cleverly, was doing the news rounds insisting that when Johnson had said he had an oven-ready deal last year, what he actually meant was the withdrawal agreement. You know, the withdrawal agreement that was a withdrawal agreement and wasn't a deal, and that withdrawal agreement that they then brought in loads of clauses in order to dismantle and break international law with. You know that one? Apparently that's what Johnson meant when he said he had an oven-ready deal. No, he didn't. Johnson meant an oven-ready deal, but like every meal he's ever had, he assumed someone else would make 
make it for him after ordering off menu for something there was no ingredients for. So there could be a conclusion to the Brexit talks by Wednesday, or it could all keep going until the 31st of December, whereby later that night we'll slowly crumble out of the EU and the New Year's Eve fireworks on the London Eye can be turned inwards to represent the pointless implosion of the country. It's not all bad news, though, as the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine has been approved as safe for use in the UK and rollout begins this week. Though with the government in charge, that could well mean into the sea or sent to staff at the NHS, aka Ninja High School. Or worse, that they've actually ordered 40 million shaken vax. Then it's more than likely that to get one, you'll have to drive 500 miles to a building in a desolate car park where a three-year-old hired by Serco will fail to inject it in the right place several times before dropping it on their own foot and you'll catch Covid from the door handle on the way out. The vaccine has a 95% success rate, so it's surprising that the government are excited about it when all it'll do is show them up by actually doing a job properly. The government are confident they'll have 800,000 injections this week, but again, it's hard to know if they're including the vaccine, the syringe, the plunger, the person administering it and the packet it all came in as separately counted items. Top of the priority list to get a vaccine are frontline NHS staff and care home workers, followed by elderly people in care homes, Stanley Johnson, Dido Harding twice, and then whoever's paid for Boris Johnson's next holiday. In order to prove its safety, the health secretary and the sort of person who calls builders mate and assumes they'll immediately like him, Matt Hancock, said he'll have the vaccine live on air, which I can't work out if it's because he wants everyone to know he's a brave boy or because working near the fumbling biohazard that is the Prime Minister, he's most likely to catch Covid again very soon. Obviously, proving the vaccine's safety is very important, but I doubt Hancock getting it would persuade many, and I think it would be a far bigger boost to the country's morale if the doctor administering it swapped the Pfizer concoction for some ketamine and we can all watch as the health secretary's legs tried to run away from his own torso and then did it again with the second jab 21 days later. Boris Johnson also said he'd have his vaccine injection televised live, which I think would work as it'd really show everyone how it's nothing to worry about compared to a much bigger, far more dangerous prick. They should title the programme The Prime Minister Gets Shot and millions would tune in only to turn off again in disappointment about a minute later. Alternative titles could also include Stab the Johnson or just Jab the Bastard. If they really wanted British people to take it, though, they should find a way to get it into Alco Pops, and I reckon everyone would have five or six the first opportunity they got to do a happy hour again. The vaccine will be distributed from Belgium, and that could mean problems in getting it delivered after Brexit, depending on what happens. But the government have said the British army could be used, as I guess no one knows better how to deliver shots to innocent civilians. I think, though, this could be Kent's chance to reign supreme. Come on, Kent, you can do it. If it's not the army, then all the vaccine-carrying lorries could be backlogged along the M2 after January the 1st, and you Kentish folk could either go full pirate and loot them before demanding a healthy ransom, or you could inject yourselves with all of it and wander the country like invincible overlords taking what you please. I'm just saying, we've tried the Conservatives' way and it hasn't worked. Maybe it's time for the Medway. Matt Hancock claimed that it was because of Brexit that the UK approved the vaccine much faster than the rest of Europe, which isn't true as we're still under the European Medical Agency remit till Jan the 1st. He may as well have said it's down to Brexit that we've had the most Covid-related deaths out of all the EU countries, because hooray, we're world-leading, but for some reason the Health Secretary wasn't too keen on that comparison. Actually, with a toll of over 60,000 deaths, we're in fourth place after the US, Brazil and Mexico, but they all have more than double our population, so I think we're really showing our productivity skills. Hugely economical we are. A number 10 spokesperson refused to confirm or deny Hancock's statement, but instead said that we're the first country in the world to approve the vaccine and it's very positive news, by which I assume they meant in terms of test results. 
It wasn't just Hancock telling Porky's incorrectly praising Brexit for the vaccine, but also thin white kook Jacob Rees-Mogg, who knows nothing about vaccines, as he's still certain you can cure illness by rubbing an onion on your head and sacrificing a villager. Hair wanker Michael Fabricant and plastic bag in the wind Nadine Durries also hopped aboard the bullshit wagon, while Education Secretary and the Reason Children Cry, Gavin Williamson, said that Britain got the vaccine before France, Belgium or the US because Britain is a much better country. In what criteria? Vaccine getting or in just giving job opportunities to people like Gavin who shouldn't be trusted to shovel horse manure without supervision? It's incredible that they thought anyone might believe they got the vaccine all by themselves when members of the cabinet apparently can't even bully someone intentionally. The Education Secretary was defeated in court last week over unlawfully removing safeguarding for 78,000 children during the pandemic, so maybe that's what you think takes us to the top of the leaderboard. Yeah, take that, Chad. We respect the rights of the child even less than you, so you can give us that medal right now. And with an approved vaccine, that means those kids will survive to be neglected by the government even longer. Best country ever. Look, I know I should try harder, but he really does just look like a giant, really angry baby. So angry, so, so angry. Probably needs winding. Deputy Chief Medical Officer Jonathan Van Tam warned that we do need to be careful about the vaccine, saying that we need more of it, it could take months, not weeks to deliver, and that it's not a yoghurt. I'm not sure if he meant because of how it needs to be kept in a fridge, or if it's to protect it from the government's destruction of British culture. The Prime Minister also warned that it would take some months before the vulnerable are protected, which I think is an understatement, as it's at least four years till the next general election. Johnson said the vaccine was biological jujitsu, which is what I reckon he puts in his qualities on his Tinder profile. Transport Secretary and post-mortem spasm Grant Shapps announced that quarantine rules are to be eased for high-value business travellers, meaning if you're delivering the Cabinet's cocaine supply, there's absolutely no need to self-isolate anymore. This is only for business trips that will result in a deal that creates 50 jobs or £100 million in investment, though, and also for performing arts workers, TV production staff, journalists and recently signed sports professionals. How disappointing. It was only earlier this year we were told that coronavirus doesn't discriminate. So there goes yet another milkshake duck. Thanks, Covid. In other news, Environment Secretary and rejected Guess Who character George Eustace defended Millwall football fans booing players taking the knee by saying Black Lives Matter is different to what most of us believe in. The issue with a man as stupid as Eustace saying this is while I'm certain this is him being unable to find a clever way to hide the fact he doesn't think black people deserve equal rights, there is also the chance that being a Tory and former UKIP are based in Cornwall, he just doesn't believe any people of colour exist and won't until he's witnessed them with his own weirdly small eyes. It's a horrific statement to make and it just vindicates the Millwall fans who decided the best way to honour finally getting to actually attend a football game in nine months was by honouring their club's tradition of being massively racist. Though many supporters online said it wasn't to do with racism, they were booing Black Lives Matter because they're Marxists. And I guess that would make sense as they probably completely approve of capitalism causing alienation and exploitation or they wouldn't have had a clue on the best ways to be racist. The Labour leader and very unexciting monolith installation, Keir Starmer, is self-isolating for a second time after one of his staff members tested positive for the virus, though I'm certain they've just figured out a way to stop having to make really boring small talk with him in the office. The Labour Party's official account tweeted that national security should be the country's top priority after it was revealed the government have cut £400 million from the fight against ISIS. No, it shouldn't. Who do we need to defend ourselves against? Any terrorists turning up in 2021 would just look around and go, nothing left for us to do here, lads, they've beaten us to it. And Grantham Council will underwrite a £100,000 unveiling ceremony for a statue of history's meanest ice cream scoop, Margaret Thatcher. Wow, that must be the most a local government has ever spent on public toilets.
Hey, 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 uh, it is weeks like this when I wonder why, oh why, oh why I do a show on a Monday for a Tuesday release when I could just do one once a year on Christmas Day where nothing ever happens and then it'd definitely still be topical for at least ten minutes till I guess the Queen balls it up with a particularly provocative speech where, I don't know, she raps the lyrics to WAP and the monarchy's immediately disbanded or something. Um, yeah, I'm hoping this episode is as up-to-date as possible, but honestly, uh, who has a clue? Um, should we all be chill, knowing that... For from January, nothing is going to be different, or should I be scrapping this podcast in order to put electric fencing around my flat to prepare for the purge? Um, exciting, worrying, but actually also just mainly immensely boring at the same time. And of course, there's just every chance that Brexit will be flung down the road for yet another week. Um, who knows? By Wednesday, this podcast could be pointless. Uh, by Wednesday, it could be exactly the same. Um, also, now there's a vaccine being distributed. That's stressful too, because I'm not going to have to find another excuse in order to avoid social events. God, it's just endless, isn't it, these times? Endless. Um, anyway, I'm not going to go on with this waffly bit um, because it is late because I was waiting to hear if anything would happen with Brexit. And of course it didn't because I have learnt nothing uh, from the four years of doing this podcast. Absolutely nothing. Do you know how hard it is to still try and write a joke about why anyone cares about fishing industry? Do you know how hard it is? Every week, every week there's been one of those for four years four years and it's been an endless red herring there's another one just wasted it just wasted it should have saved it for next week um big thank yous this week to somebody and kim for donating to the kofi uh, and also to ashley for joining the patreon crew thank you ashley um it is of course the season for giving so if you would like to be my secret santa uh, then rather than send me something awkward or embarrassing that you found in the pound store why not fling a quid or two to the uh, ko-fi.com forward slash parpol bro page uh, join the patreon.com forward slash parpol bro uh, team or donate at the acast supporter button and then I'll go and buy myself something awkward and embarrassing from the pound store uh, and you won't need to be there. I can just do it. I can just suffer that consequence myself. Um, if you can't donate because, well, why on earth give me money when you'd prefer to eat or pay bills or do something nice with it like donate to a food bank, um, then why not instead give the gift of a lovely five-star review for this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Acast, CastBox or wherever you get your puddings from and say something nice while you're at it. Go on, something nice. Say some nice words. Plinth, that's a lovely one. Um, failing all those things, just tell someone to tune in and that will also do. Uh, plus some socks. I always need socks. Thank you. Um, a couple of quick things. Uh, one is that I uploaded the wrong podcast file last week. And so if you listened uh, to the podcast last Tuesday to Friday, you will have had a worse sound quality than from Friday onwards. I am sorry. I am an idiot. I labelled both files with exactly the same name and then picked the wrong one. Um, I sabotaged myself. No idea why. But I guess this year's just been that bleak and sort of relentless that I've taken to entertaining uh, by self-pranking. I'm hoping I don't put like soy sauce in my tea or something just to ruin my own day. Um, that's what a school friend of mine did to her brother. I often think about that. And shudder about how much that would ruin my entire day. So cruel. It's so cruel. In retaliation, uh, he tied her to a chair and then threw heavy things at her head. That is sibling, uh, sibling love right there. Jesus. Thinking about it, they were a very strange family. Um, anyway, on this week's show, uh, there is no Brexit fallout because who knows if we'll know anything by the time you hear this. So I promise to stick one on the last podcast of the year, which will be next week. Um, what there is, though, is a chat with Liz Webster at Save British Farming, um, who very kindly agreed to a super last minute interview after the guest I had booked in uh, had to drop out for very good reasons um, which are obviously uh, that they had more important things to do um, so very hugely grateful to Liz for that and it's a really informative chat too um, plus there is a little look at when, where and how you might vaccine and if Bill Gates really does want to put tiny chips into your arms so you can eat them for your tea because yum yum chip arms um, spoiler he doesn't but I'll have small chip arms please to take away loads of vinegar thank you <laughs> 
As a city kid who was raised vegetarian and still sticks with it, you know, so I've got something vaguely interesting to say about my personality, along with tea drinker. I'm aware I know very, very little about farms and farming. Um, that is outside of nursery rhymes, country file and visiting farm shops and saying, oh, that sauce is expensive quite a lot. Oh, and that time we had a junior school trip to a sort of theme park crossed with a real farm where our head teacher pointed to a load of strung up poultry and rabbits and said, I bet they're well gutted and several children cried. Farming in the UK is a massively important industry worth £120 billion, employing over 4 million people and providing roughly 64% of all the food we eat across the country. Yes, including those expensive sources. And much like so many things, farming is under threat right now, both from Brexit itself, which will affect exports, uh, EU subsidies for farmers and also immigration, meaning many seasonal workers will no longer be able to come to the UK to pick fruit and veg. Um, Even despite many MPs insisting we'd definitely be able to cherry pick what we liked. But farming is also under threat from the Government's Agriculture Act, that is pretending to be a climate change tackling future proofing range of policies, but in reality is more likely to mean your dinner will have travelled more than your blue passport will allow you to, and homegrown produce could be up against cheaper exported grub pumped full of more hormones than an angry teenager and produced by workers so exploited they make Uber seem like kings of human rights. Traditionally, a large number of farmers have always voted Conservative and for Brexit too, but with these measures and lack of protections likely to make the industry unviable for many in agriculture, what exactly are the party meant to be conserving anymore other than their own self-interests? So at this late stage, can anything be done to secure the future of the British farming industry and our food supply? Or will I soon have to be singing to my daughter about old MacDonald with his substantial debts and efforts to retrain in cyber? This week, I spoke to Liz Webster, one of the team at Save British Farming campaign, who have been protesting against the government's agriculture and trade bills since earlier this year. You might recall on the news an event in July when loads of farmers drove their tractors to Parliament, which must have been noticed by politicians absolutely terrified of the idea of having to reap what they've sown. Liz explained to me just how important British farming is, just why they're under threat and how important those school visits actually are. You know, just maybe don't take the head teacher along next time. Yeah. It was great speaking to Liz about an area I haven't covered on this podcast before, and the reality of just how Brexit could affect our food supply is really, really very scary. Oh, and I should point out that right at the end, she did indeed have a copy of Farmers Weekly to hand, which was brilliant. Here is Liz. Hi, Liz. Um, thanks for talking to me. And I, I briefly mentioned to you before we started recording, I am both a vegetarian and a Londoner. So my knowledge of farming is very, very limited. And I thought it might be uh, a good place to start just to ask you how important is British farming? I know we all need food. <laughs> That's obvious. But, um, you know, how uh, much of Britain's food does uh, British farming supply? How much of it do we export? How much do we need it? Well, um, it's a complicated, you, you um, asked a very complicated question there. Um, I'm, I'm a bit older than you. And uh, so I'm, I'm very, I was a bit, ba- I'm a baby boomer, a young one. Um, and so for me, my um, whole grounding in farming and British agriculture is based on the war, really. And the lessons that were learned from the war when we didn't, we, we didn't have much food production here. We were relying on imports. Um, So we know in recent times what happens if you don't have enough food uh, uh, produced at home, if there's some threat of a war um, or or disturbance to the food, the global food stocks, then, you know, you're basically risking your country uh, being starved. So so for me, I, I think food is the most important thing because without it, we die. Um, and whilst we haven't had a famine um, in this part of the world for some time, not since the Irish potato famine, 
um, it, it, it is possible and, and it's, it's scary. And that is the thing that keeps me awake at night is our food security. So um, it doesn't matter whether you're vegan, vegetarian, or uh, you, know, you eat meat or, or whatever, we all need food. Um, and farming here in Britain provides most of your food. Um, there is often uh, arguments about this. Between 60 and 70% of the food um, that is consumed in this country is produced by British farmers. So, um, and also on top of that, we have, we're over in supply of things like lamb and that those exports go to France and Italy mainly. But of course, if there was a food shortage, we could rely on that food. It's like a food bank, really. It's a food store. So all of these things are really, really important to us. And I think what has happened when I grew up as a child in every town, um, there was a cattle market and an abattoir and it was part of our daily life that you saw cows being milked and you stopped your car for them and you know we lived with farming as as as, as children in the 60s and 70s oh god I've given my age away um and uh, uh so <laughs> it's it's changed now because we've got very much a centralized food supply and so everything goes into it's out of sight and so people tend to think that food comes from the supermarket and it doesn't, it comes from farms. So I would say to people like you who are vegetarian, absolutely, or townies, come out and visit farms, understand how it works, understand where your food comes from and how it's produced. Because if there is a food shortage, you'll need to understand how to grow food in your back garden. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm fully on board. I, I, I am 100% behind the notion that food is important. That is, I believe, you know, I'm very aware of that. <laughs> um, so that's fascinating. Thank you. Um, and uh, yeah, I just think it's sort of important, as you say, uh, you know, I, I shop in the supermarket and I occasionally see the word farm written on something that Sainsbury's have supplied themselves, but pretend it's from a, you know, or it, it might be from somewhere else entirely. And so I think re-establishing that connection for many of us is really really important um and and i i wondered um if you could talk to me a little bit about save british farming because obviously the agriculture act passed at the beginning of november um and again with uh, as i said quite a lot of people i think aren't aware of how important farming is i think they're also not really aware of what the agriculture act is or what it means and what it's going to do um so why are why are farmers unhappy with it what are the concerns and I suppose very importantly for all of us listening what does it mean for our food yeah I mean this government are are, are very good at at doing sneaky tricks so they they remind me of how the tricks I go to to worm my dog um you know I I put the worming tablet <laughs> in butter and then I cake it in, in, in I cake it in cake because uh, my dog's got a very sweet tooth. Um, and uh, that's what they do with stuff. So they, they, they make it look and sound as if it's wonderful. And then when you dig a bit deeper, it's, it's actually pretty nasty. Um, and that is my view about the Agriculture Act. In fact, it doesn't hardly mention food. The Agriculture Act really is an environmental act. And they're trying to play into the sort of uh, a green agenda, which everybody's worried about climate damage and what can we do to change it? And I feel guilty about eating meat and all of these different things. And they're trying to make out that they're doing something amazing and producing this new way of farming, which is going to be, you know, cows out in the woodland. And it sounds like amazing, doesn't it? You know, what a lovely film to see cows grazing out in my inwards. 
Well, the problem is, is that like with everything with Boris Johnson, when it hits reality, it doesn't work. You can't graze cows in the woodland. Uh, they need to eat grass. And there isn't much grass in the woodland. And also cows are quite destructive to trees as well because they rub on them and they're big animals. So there's, there's lots of things in the Agriculture Act and which ties into this new form of support, the elms, which are um, just incredibly, uh, I can see they're deeply flawed. And I always say this, go back to the anchor, as I call it, of Patrick Mingford who was the economist that they used for Brexit. And he was Margaret Thatcher's economist as well for the closure of the, uh, the pits and the steelworks. Um, and he uh, gave evidence to parliamentary committee all back in 2012. And he was explicit. The Brexit plan is, is a neoliberal plan to let the markets take control. And the sacrificial lamb of that is farming and manufacturing. Um, because in doing trade deals with other countries, as a small country, we have to concede. And part of that concession is accepting, uh, you know, America firsts agriculture um, and Australia. What do, what do Australia want to... You, everyone says, wow, we've got a trade deal with, with Australia. Well, I can't remember the exact population of Australia, but it's, it's not many. Uh, but they've got a lot of cows and a lot of sheep. And so for Australia, it's great for them to then have access to the British market. They don't get access to the European market because they, A, don't have a trade deal with the EU, but B, they, uh, their standards are lower than ours. They use hormones um, with their cattle um, and more antibiotics, substantially more, five times more antibiotics. Um, and those things, once they go into the, human food chain, uh, you know, the, the whole antibiotic resistance um, plus other side effects of eating hormones are, are just not, I just don't think they're worth the risk to take them. So I am immensely concerned that we do not have any form of protection in the Agriculture Act for food or farming, for British food or, or British farming as matters stand. Now we're going to take that flight to the trade bill, which is due to come up soon. But as you know, today, when we were meant to know if there was an EU deal or not, and, and guess what, we're not going to know until Monday now or next week. So in the event of no deal, with the Agriculture Act being, as I, as I call it, an open door, it means that under WTO, we can basically be dumped on. So you're looking at South America, rubbing their hands, you know, all of the Argentinian and Brazilian beef um, can, can come flooding in here, plus GM crops, you know, you're a vegetarian, but that still affects you. There's health risks associated with pesticides that are used on crops, um, as well as, uh, you know, all of the, the, the industrialization of the, of the American agriculture sector is terrifying to us British. And it's really not part of our culture. We love our animals. We love our, I mean, I feel as if, I mean, I, I am, I live on a farm. I know that's unusual, but whenever, whenever you go abroad and you come back and you see the British countryside, I just feel that that's what makes me British. That, that's what makes me feel patriotic about being British. And all of that is under threat. So our food security, how Britain looks and how our food is produced, because we will still produce food here, but it will, it will mean that we will produce food intensively. And that means animals crowded in 
uh, in sheds um, and and low standards, and and that's against everything that that we stand for as as a nation. I mean, do a lot of farmers feel bet- I mean, obviously betrayed by this act, but betrayed by the Conservatives because the whole point in the name of the Conservatives is that they conserve things. That's what we've for many many years. The idea is they conserve the kind of uh, the British countryside, and that was part of what the party stood for. And this seems like they're doing the exact opposite and not protecting any of that that must feel quite strange well i'm not a conservative and i never have been i grew up in south wales and uh, so i I'm, I'm not on i've never i've never <laughs> i remember margaret thatcher and what uh, what damage she did my father was a used to vote conservative but my uh, it, my mother was was very much a labor voter so that's why i've ended up in the middle probably um i, I think the uh, the the farmers that have that did vote Conservative um, and possibly did vote Brexit. Some, a lot of them did. Um, I, I think they're kind of in denial, like rabbits in, in the headlights. I, I think some of them have come to understand what it means and others don't want to face the truth of what it means and still want to. They'd rather focus on... Uh, blaming still continuing to blame the eu for everything so it's it's a mixed picture at the moment um, but more and more are certainly waking up to uh the reality of of what it means um and i suppose that will continue over over a period of time because it's very interesting you mentioned earlier that it's it's what's not in the agriculture bill that's a big problem there's no protections in there that should be and um, but i'm i'm assuming there's lots of other areas of brexit that also affect farmers you know for example we've been hearing over the past year how already immigration issues have caused there to be problems with fruit picking and vegetable picking are there other areas of brexit that you know that farmers also need to be very wary of yes well it's it's because everything's happening all at once so this is the problem it sort of makes it unsurvivable for many people so the check they're removing the current support or they're withdrawing that gradually over a period of time starting next year and then the new system won't be in place until 2027 I think um, and so there will be a gap you know it's like it's like sort of like saying you know there's 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 a, a cliff edge um, and then the new system and you've got at least two years without any support at the moment so there's all sorts of uncertainties around the future um, and then when you look at the present because we're looking at a, a, a no deal and a, a thin deal. If we've got a thin deal, at least we'll still be able to export to Europe. In no deal Brexit, it means an immediate flood in of uh, poor quality food, which means then our access to the European Union without a free trade deal means tariffs, very, very, very high tariffs for particularly for beef um, and lamb and quotas. Um, and uh, and so basically it means that we lose our export market, uh, really. It, it'll become almost impossible. There will be chaos. Um, and so we'll be in oversupply. And when you're in oversupply, particularly in lamb and possibly in beef, then, uh, you know, you, you're looking at prices being rock bottom and lambs having to be slaughtered and all sorts of horrible scenarios. So there's there's that happening um at all, so the three things domestic market flooded export market burnt and subsidy dwindling so I, as i said i keep coming back to patrick minford 
You've got, he said to them, you've got to run it down. And we saw what they did with the miners. There was a clash and they told them what they wanted to do. And the conservatives have learnt a new trick, which is to say what people want to hear and say, we're doing this for a lovely environment and a beautiful Peter Rabbit world. And it's all fake. It's false. Um, and, and, and you can see that throughout Boris Johnson's career with certain things that he's done. The Garden Bridge you know all sorts of harebrained schemes um where where really the plan is to as i call it privatize our food so that the supermarkets will really be responsible for feeding us and that doesn't sit comfortably with me but as i said i'm a baby boomer i remember all of the lessons from the war and everyone says but we're not going to have a war that's ridiculous the war that we confront right now is climate change um, and that is going to, it's already causing significant problems um, for farmers across the world. Um, and that is, it's set to increase. So I think it's absolutely ludicrous and irresponsible to start destroying your food security. And, and surely the past year with COVID as well, has that not affected food in a way that you know that makes us realize how important it is to have supplies like i i just thought that with everyone stockpiling over the past year uh for lockdowns and things one of the most important things must have been to have food here that we weren't having to transport from other places and yeah i mean the, the public the public are completely behind us um and, and i would say that covid has ensured that when we do our tractor demos um the public support and love is is massive and part of the food standards campaign has absolutely shown and with the polling is there to back this up that there is huge we're hugely united about this um but the government is not interested in working for although it's, it, it said brexit was all about the will of the people it, it only works for the will of the people that uh, that it agrees with and so it's just trying to con us like uh yeah, it's it's like that. I'm going to give you another analogy. It's like it's like the child napper in Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. You know, they're trying to they do all these things, con you into this place, <laughs> um, and and then you'll 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 be forced to food shortages, and and you'll have to eat whatever's there. And as you know, with COVID, when there's no chicken on the shelves, when suddenly it appears again, you, people are not going to be scrutinised about where it came from. They're going to buy whatever's available because when you're hungry, you'll eat anything. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. And we'll be back with Liz in a minute, but first... The vaccine rollout begins this week, which, depending on how things go with Brexit negotiations, will either involve them being given to frontline healthcare staff and care home workers by the time you hear this, or they'll be being smuggled out of Europe by the Secret Service like the world's most unnecessary Mission Impossible sequel before being airdropped into the middle of a city centre where we all fight over them as the last vestiges of civilised behaviour disappear from Britain. The victor is claimed the immune god who'll get to impregnate all the rest of us in exchange for luxury goods such as vegetables or Amazon vouchers, and so will start the new normal. Sorry, I got a bit carried away there. But there are a lot of questions you might have about the vaccine before wanting one jabbed into your eye, including, should I really have this in my eye? For which the immediate answer is, no, please don't do that. Please be careful with your eye. Firstly, uh, go back to the episode of this show from the 15th of September and listen to the interview with immunologist Professor Sheena Crickshank about how vaccines work. Have you done that? No? Yeah, let's just pause this show, come back to it. No, don't, don't listen to this one at the same time. Look, just ask someone who knows how phones work. Oh, forget it. Okay, forget it. All right, forget it. Okay, so here are some quick answers to some things you may want to know. Do we only get the vaccine because we're the best country? No, of course not. I mean, best country out of how many? Is it just us versus DR Congo? If so, I mean, they've got better weather at least, so probably still second. Um, Loads of idiots, sorry, cabinet ministers, have said that it's because of Brexit that we've once again gone against all British stereotypes like total unpatriotic bastards and Q jumped to snaffle the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine first. Apparently, we've been able to speed it all up quicker than them foreign types because sovereignty and the Queen personally collecting it for us or something. Super ofs, none of that is true, and it's actually to do with, altogether now, Regulation 174 of the Human Medicine, Regulations 2012. What? Why didn't you all join in? Weird. Long story short, all vaccines in the UK until December 31st are meant to be regulated by the European Medicines Agency. But since 2012, the UK Medicine and Healthcare Products Regulatory Agency has been able to, under Reggie 174, give a temporary approval to unlicensed medical products in the case of a public health threat. You know, like a goddamn pandemic, or a zombie apocalypse, or facehuggers, or something like that. So that is under EU law and one of the exceptions that is allowed under EU law right there. And the government has talked about changing the Human Medicines Regulations 2012, but none of the changes that they were talking about would have affected how we got the vaccine. And the real main difference why we've got it quicker than Europe is that they've decided to all work together and coordinate efforts so everyone can get some. Which, you know, takes time. Unlike this loner who's at the front of the queue, but with no one to talk to or share the experience with while we wait in the cold. Why have the EU said it might not be safe? And they didn't really. Uh, Certain European politicians said they thought it was best to have longer, more thorough examinations before distribution, which the European Medical Agency will do. Um, However, the MHRA began a rolling review of the vaccine in October, which wasn't just checking if the vaccine was rolling with its homies or rolling in the deep or um, rolling rawhide. It was instead analysing each package of data as it became available, meaning they could assess it super quick time. And from that, they decided it was good enough to get going, especially when, with 60,000 dead from COVID and people being still too stupid to wear their masks or not go to Harrods, then they had to approve of something or no one will be left to appreciate just how shit Brexit will be. Why does Bill Gates want to microchip me? Because he hates you and your mum. He heard you insulting that paperclip again. Really, it's old school. He's had enough of it. 
No, look, of course, uh, no one will really know if there are side effects from this vaccine until enough people have taken it. Enough time has passed and it's become normal in society for us all to have insect legs poking from our cheeks and to speak in Microsoft Windows programming code. Uh, Really, though, an independent group, the Data Monitoring Committee, have been checking for all that side effect stuff and there has been nothing of note in all the trials so far apart from a little bit of fatigue in some patients. Though... Are they sure that isn't just the effects of 2020? Because it's so goddamn exhausting that I am tired every day just from living through it. When When's it going to end? Actually, fairly soon. Uh, the vaccine uses messenger RNA or mRNA. Uh, no, not MSN messenger. Stop it. Behave yourself. And mRNA is a single strand of genetic code that has a small chat with your cells who read it and make a particular bit of the virus's spike protein, which allows your bod to take it down. Then if it comes into contact with the real OG COVID, your immune system is all, yeah, I know you motherfucker. Don't you even think about stepping to me. And then they shank it the fuck up or something like that. But with science words, you'll need two shots with the second one 28 days later as a reminder in case your cells are stupid and forgetful and can never remember a face. Can pregnant women and kids get one? It's pretty hard to test vaccines on pregnant women or on kids because, well, I mean, you try going around saying, hey, would you and your unborn baby mind if I stab things in your arm and see if you both survived? Really wouldn't go down well. Same with seeing if people mind their kids getting tested on, though there were days during lockdown when I'd have been happy to send my daughter to a lab if it had meant some free childcare. So official advice if you're full of baby is to wait till your baby is born and kids are unlikely to get an approved vaccine till late 2021. Ha ha, guide kids. Can I have one for Christmas if I ask Santa real nice? Uh, No, but it's going out to frontline healthcare workers and care home workers first, then everyone aged 80 and over, then 75 and over, then 70 and over and clinically vulnerable, and then everyone called Susan, everyone who can do that thing where you turn your tongue upside down, followed by mime artists, people in hats, and then everyone except you. You'll be last. You, You will be. They want you to have it last. Sorry, I mean, ignore the last few. Um, it's basically descending age order and health needs. So if you're a fit young whippersnapper, you won't be getting jabbed till next year. And that's your fault for being one of those healthy gits who can eat what they like and looks good in those t-shirts. You know the ones. Stop looking smug. Stop it. Will it definitely get here all okay? Well, it comes from Belgium and the first lot has got here all okay, but it does have to be stored in specially designed thermo boxes containing dry ice at around minus 70 degrees Celsius, which means when they open them, it looks proper sci-fi. It can only be moved once from those thermo boxes in batches of about a thousand without, I don't know, exploding or going mouldy or whatever. Okay, probably neither of those things, but you know, it just won't be as effective. And then they can be kept in a fridge for five days or six hours in a cool bag. So you should be able to get them on a Monday and have them for tea on a Friday. Uh, The bigger issue is that they'll come from Europe, so how Brexit may affect the delivery of them after January the 1st is yet to be seen, as we know um, it could be a problem getting medicine to us. But apparently the army are on hand to transport the vaccine if they need, and then the bigger problem will be finding them if they're all dressed in camouflage and they could get lost in the undergrowth for months. Could I have all the vaccines, please? The UK have ordered all the bloody vaccines. Yeah, we have all of them. There'll be 40 million of the Pfizer-BioNTech one, but also 100 million of the Oxford-AstraZeneca one, 60 million of the Valneva one, 60 million of the Novavax one, 60 million of the GlaxoSmithKline ones, 30 million of the Janssen ones, which I think it just from one excited Swedish guy, and 5 million Moderna ones, which I'm assuming are VIP or something and come with a free cocktail. But at the mo, uh, there's no idea of the effects of having more than one of them, or whether if you take all of them, you become a giant COVID cell and float around coughing on all below until you're taken down by a superhero. No one knows. The guidance says, though, that if you attend for your first jab at one place, but you have to take your second jab somewhere else, it should be reasonable to have the vaccine that is available there, as they all work in pretty much the same way. But come on now, don't be greedy, eh? 
Hopefully that has answered any questions you might have and also might explain why really the country won't be all COVID-free till at least spring or summer based on just how long it's going to take to get everyone stabbed with magic cure. Or if Brexit does ruin everything, then we'll all have to go around licking healthcare workers and hoping they might pass on the goodness through their DNA. And I'm sure they'd like that a lot more than clapping. Certain of it. Absolutely certain of it. Till then, mask up and um, get down. Oh, God, I'm such a dad, aren't I? Such a cringy dad. Pretty sure cringy dads are at the bottom of the vaccine list, even lower than people called Bernard. And now, back to Liz. Just on that, uh, you know, as you say, the government are very good at deceiving people about what what the real motive is. Um, one of the stories that I'm uh, particularly confused about because it's something I know nothing about, but the, you know, the live animal exports being banned from England and Wales. And I saw the National Farming Union saying, no, we just want a restriction of exports. But the government is saying, this is brilliant for animal welfare and the RSPCA are behind it. Um, what does it actually mean? Is it great for animals or are we, you know, is it actually quite a dangerous ban that's now going to affect farming? Well, they admitted on Monday when they uh, produced the report that the result of these changes will mean less sheep and less cows in Britain. So now they're talking about banning live exports when they know that there's not going to be many animals here. We're not going to have many animals to export, are we? So it, it, it's not I don't I don't know. You know, I think I think it's a, I think it's a sop. And I think it's just an emotional thing to make to make people think, oh, that Boris has been amazing. He stopped people being cruel to animals. But look, the whole thing about live exports is a very you said people have visions of these animals being crowded in cages and traveling around everywhere. Animals are transported all of the time, even just within the UK. Horses are transported around the world all of the time. When we buy cattle, that cattle might have travelled from Scotland all the way down to Exeter and we buy it in Exeter and then it comes back here where we farm in Wiltshire. So this this thing about thinking, well, they're exporting them, it's actually such a small issue and the whole basis of the European Union system is actually to reduce those journey times. Nobody wants to be transporting animals for thousands of miles. The people that are transporting animals, live exports of thousands of miles, are countries like Australia. I mean, recently there was a whole ship that sank with um, 6,000 cows died. Um, that is, and, and that is what's so frightening about the Agriculture Act having no protections, is that they're saying that Britain is going to ban live exports. Well, I don't think they need to ban them because we won't be in enough supply to export much anyway, and our European market is dying off. (laughs) And then we then open the gates to Australia to send a shipload of cattle over here, and we can do nothing about that. Nothing. So I so think the conditions might be even worse for the for for the supplies that we are getting and for the animals that we are getting or or the meat that we're getting. They may have gone under worse conditions than they would have been in under British standards anyway. Exactly. So they say something which makes it look nice and fluffy and makes everybody feel good about life, when in fact they're opening the door to decimation of British agriculture to ensure the global food chains which are low standards that can't get access to the European Union are going to flood into Britain and onto our supermarket shelves. I will not, you know, I'm, if, if this happens, then, you know, people need to be aware of where the, their food comes from, local provenance. That's, that's what I will be looking um, for as a consumer. 
but it's it's not that easy because everything is 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 centralized within Britain everything so people say oh I go to my farm shop and I buy my carrots from my farm shop well those carrots don't you can't grow it's very hard to grow carrots all year round those carrots come from a centralized foods depot um, so some of them may have been grown on the farm at some stage but not all of them and of course, there's issues with labelling and everything else that isn't being dealt with properly. So it might be harder for us to find out where it's come from. And yeah, and we already uh, have those issues, issues like with labelling. Recently, Booker Cash and Carry, that's been bought out by Tesco, uh, was caught out relabeling beef that had come from South America, and they put a British label on top of it. So those things are already happening. Um, so we will be, and, and certainly from, say, British farming's point of view, we will be working hard in the event after Brexit has happened with supermarkets to get and, and to find out where their food is coming from um, so that the, the consumers have got some some assurance. But, um, yeah, it's 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 a scary world that we're living in, really. I, I don't believe anybody in this country, not not many people in this country, want to see this change. Um, but it's coming now and um, all we can do is try and you know mitigate the worst of it and then next election you know people need to understand that they need to vote for a, a party that's that cares about Britain <laughs> not the global <laughs> marketplace <laughs> that'd be nice wouldn't it that'd be nice um hope hope is a good thing um I I wonder because you, you did mention earlier obviously that that you know the big issue affecting farming and food is is climate change that's one of the big issues around the world and whether or not it is what the agriculture act does that's when they, they've sold it on the basis of it being good for the environment um i wondered if you know if you think that that, that changes to the subsidy system are needed because i remember that being one of the um things that lots of farmers pre-brexit were saying why we need to get out of the eu is to change the subsidy system and i i wondered what reforms you think are needed and what support farmers should be getting in an in an ideal world what would be the support that farmers were getting in order to make this happen and and what do you think would be a, a better system to have in place yeah i mean i'm i'm a realist and and i honestly whenever you build a system it's always there's always winners and losers um so it doesn't there is you know this kind of unicorn thing of you know getting the perfect system is 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 deeply flawed um and and i think the system that we had with the eu was as good as, as as it can get within the global structures, um, but to enhance farming um, further, particularly in this country, grants. You know, we import a lot of tomatoes and lettuce and flowers from Holland, which has got a similar climate uh, climate to us. We should be doing more of that here, and and that's where you know the investment is needed to get the greenhouses going and and growing those sort of things locally rather than importing them. Um, so that's what I would like to see more support with. Um, but uh, at the moment, we, we don't, it's so vague, the plan. All we know is, you know, there's, they're, they're wanting to sort of um, get us to plant trees. <laughs> is, that, is that the only thing that, that it's clear about? Well, and that seems to be the headline of it. Yeah, the trees seem to be, uh, the, well, you know, as we understand it, there's going to be um, payments for creating public goods so if we um uh flood one of our fields which because we're on the river thames here and um, we already are signed up to some of these environmental schemes actually on this farm um and perhaps if we turn one of our fields into a picnic area or those kind of things we'll we'll get paid some money for but 
Um, some of the environmental schemes that we are already in are demonstrably uh, um, complicated and uh, and you know not every farmer a lot of farmers voted brexit to get rid of red tape and uh it's that there are a lot of there, there are a lot of work um and they take a long time to pay out as well and, and the ones that we, we get at the moment are not huge amounts of money they're quite small amounts of money which is why i think if someone wants to continue farming they will have certain sections of the farm that they will be in environmental schemes and then you'll be seeing probably intensive farming then within that farm that's, that's the only way I can see it surviving it, it will lead to more intensification and more food imports and more climate damage madness so it's just it's, it none of it is going to do what they're saying that it's set out to do no, no I mean it's a veneer isn't it it's going to be a veneer of you know it's hmm. perhaps if you're a very very wealthy landowner that perhaps has got a, a big house that you open to the public and you've got different things that you've got on that estate then they're going to benefit from those kind of estates are going to benefit the most from this scheme because they're going perhaps one area where they have caravans camping and then they might have a a rare breed of cattle in in one area um, and then they might have uh, you know a, a farm shop um, and then they also perhaps let, you know, you have tourists going in to look around the stately home. So all of those types of, of, of places are going to benefit. The, the hardest hit are going to be the family farm, which is, you know, four or five hundred acres, which is too much work. You know, it, it, it means that one farmer needs to work farming full time, um, but there might not be enough income for him to be farming full time. So he's going to be between a rock and a hard place. Um, so that that's that's going to be the hardest thing, I think. And they're the ones that probably will be either intent. They'll either be enticed into going into a petting zoo, zoo or that type of thing, or they might be they might be encouraged into intensive farming. So you might think, well, okay, I'll plant my wood outside, um, and I will then have a shed, and these animals will be fed in a shed. Then I don't have to put them outside um, and and go through all of that effort. You know, I mean, the thought of having cattle outside in the wood is is really, uh, yeah, so it's exercised my mind this week thinking about that, how you would even manage when they were carving to get them into, you know, you've got to bring animals in, <laughs> be chasing them around the trees. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I can't, in, in, I, just the idea of the cow as a woodland animal really doesn't sit well in my head <laughs> at all. It doesn't make much sense. Um, so, you know, as you said earlier, we're speaking on well, supposedly the the eve of a Brexit announcement, which might be ne- next next week, some point next week, possibly the week after. We never know. It seems to go on for most of our lives. Um, and, and that's going to happen, uh, you know, one way or the other, no deal or, or a thin deal, as you mentioned. So what is the best way to support your campaign and to support farmers? You mentioned that people need to be checking where they get their food from as, as best as they can. But are there other things that, that listeners can do, whether they are anywhere near a farm or not? What can they be doing to support uh, Save British Farming? The best thing the public can do is to support our campaign, donate to our campaign. We need money. <laughs> um, and to share our, um, to share our uh, things on uh, social media, um, and to just talk to the public about it, really. Um, and what we want to try and set up when there's more time is to set up really um, trying to connect farms with people with, fam- you know, family visits. I'm keen to start doing those things around education. 
Um, I, I already do that here with our local area and bring kids up to meet the cattle. And it's really, I think it's really good for people to understand these things um, much, much more and get more connection with, with nature and farm life, because <laughs> that's what it is. And the thing to think about this is, is that at the moment in the UK, there's only about 130,000 farmers. So people like my husband, who's born on this farm, his generations of farmers, he comes from generations of farmers, and his knowledge has been passed down from generation to generation. And they are the things that are going to be extinct. We're not going to, and he understands this farm, he understands the land, he understands the birds and, you know, all of the signs of what's going on. And I think that's the saddest thing if we lose our farmers. Um, and so, yeah, whatever anyone can do to support us, put a poster up, give a donation, share our posts on social media um, and, and uh, sign petitions as well. That's really important. Write to your MP, lobby your MP um, and guess, you know, even right to your because it's really the conservatives there's a problem everybody else agrees with us it's just the conservative party so right to the conservative association and um try not to vote conservative in the future <laughs> <Care about that>. <laughs> <laughs> very wise advice i give that advice most weeks on this podcast um so <laughs> and thank you thank you so much for speaking to me Liz. and I, I just um the last question which is something i ask all the guests uh on this show um with the hope of just furthering people's information resources um is that you know who who else apart from yourself and, and the Save British Farming campaign? Who else should listeners read or or follow or listen to on the issue of farming and food standards um, or politics in general? Who are the people that you go to for information? Right. Okay. Well, there's um, there's some good people on social media, and there's a, there's a great person called um, James Rebanks, and he's written a lot of books about agriculture, and it, he's he's very easy to read. Um, so he's 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 great to really engage in re in romantic farming but hinged in reality um so certainly i would recommend following him um and you know what i would say to people and i this is my fate i've got it right here because it's my favorite by farmers weekly because a lot of my friends say they they listen to the archers and that's how they get in that's how they feel in touch with farming um, but go one step further and buy <laughs> Farmers Weekly. A lot of people buy Country Life, which is a nice magazine for your coffee table. But really, if you want to know what's going on, and they've got great features, they've got regular writers who are farmers. This is real farming. Um, and it's not a very expensive magazine. Um, and it also, you can get it delivered to your door. So I would definitely advise people to to buy that because you know if 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 farming goes then Farmers Weekly is 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 needing a new is needing support to keep going as a, as a publication. So absolutely big plug for Farmers Weekly. Thank you, Liz, for not only having time to chat, but also being up for me interviewing her at such late notice. Uh, you can find Liz on Twitter at ABC Poppins and the Save British Farming campaign is savebritishfarming.org with all details on how to support them or generate a letter to your MP. Um, and they are at British Save on Twitter or Save British Farming on Facebook too. Only one more full podcast left of the year and I've got a great guest lined up. But next year's post-Brexit shitstorm is going to be full of issues. It'd be good to speak to actual clever clog types who know about them about. 
Who and what will we need, or shall I just find the person best at screaming to teach us the most efficient ways to make sure our yells of despair can be heard across several countries? Let me know who to try and talk to, and you can do that at Parpol Bro on Twitter, the Partly Political Broadcast group on Facebook, the contact page at partlypoliticalbroadcast.co.uk, or email me at partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com. Or you could write it on a mysterious shiny monolith and leave it in various odd locations around the globe, hoping that I'll see your suggestion once it's spotted by a helicopter or wandering traveller, but instead it'll cause a load of extremist Christians to denounce it as evil and tear it down because getting up early on a Sunday gives them terrible anger management issues. Anyway, as always, it's probably just best to email, isn't it? And that is all for this week's Partly Political Broadcast podcast. And as always, I've saved the worst till last. And it is time for the Papa Bro Hot Podcast Fact! This week, as Brexit negotiations may or may not have finally come to a close by the time you listen to this, but assuming you're hearing this in 2053, uh, then what are the longest political negotiations of all time based on what I could find on Google? In third place is the Belgian political crisis, which started in 2007 after the Dutch-speaking parties won electoral victory and wanted devolution of the Flemish bits from the French-speaking bits. Parties argued the electoral district around Brussels was split to represent the French bits and the Dutch bits, and it ended up taking 194 days to form a government. But that's nothing, as it was followed by another crisis in 2008, which led to resignations, and then another election in 2010, where it then took 541 days to form a government, which, if anything, just means the opposing parties had to see even more of each other if they'd sorted it out quickly. Belgium hold the record for the longest government formation in the world, beating Iraq, who had spent 10 years under dictatorship and US invasion, but that's obviously nothing compared to having to flat share with French people. Off. Who am I? David Davis. <laughs> in second place is the Northern Ireland peace process, which started in 1993, when then-Prime Minister and half-assed charcoal doodle John Major and then Taoiseach, who always looked like he was from several decades before, Albert Reynolds, signed the Joint Declaration of Peace. Uh, that included statements such as the British government have no selfish strategic or economic interest in Northern Ireland, because sadly a time traveller didn't appear to let them know about the deal the Tories made with the DUP in 2017. And apologies for a shockingly brief uh, paraphrasing of a traumatic part of history an awful lot of negotiations and horrific violence later the troubles officially ended in 2007 with the DUP and Sinn Féin forming a government and the British Army ending their Operation Banner mission so called because like Bruce Banner they left a lot of damage while insisting it was in the name of peacekeeping in first place though for longest political negotiation ever it's North and South Korea who are still technically in the Korean War which started in 1950 after the US and USSR established the country as separate nations. While the vicious fighting stopped in 1953 after North Korea, China and the US signed an armistice agreement South Korea objected to the continued division of the country so didn't they didn't sign anything they said it ain't over yet that's nearly 70 years all I'm saying is I don't know why you're all wanting Brexit over and done with we won't break any records with that what we should do is stick a demilitarised zone down the channel and just see how it goes. Deal? Deal. That was this week's very loosely themed and largely ignorant of all the nuances as to why all those negotiations are different from each other and Brexit bar bar bro hot bongos facts. Yeah. And I'll be awaiting your detailed complaints about everything in that from my fake mocking of the idea of French flatmates all the way to demeaning the Northern Ireland peace process by summing it up in two sentences. I am sorry. Sort of. For more ill-informed, terrible pop quiz finishers, why not tell all who exist on this planet and even mythical creatures that don't to listen and subscribe to this show, give it a lovely five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, CastBox, Acast or wherever you get your pod droppings from and donate to the Ko-fi Patreon or Acast supporter site if you can afford to. Big time grateful noises to Acast, my brother last sceptic Cat Day and Katie Coxall and this will be back next week when Brexit negotiations will still be fucking happening. Bye!
This week's show was sponsored by Gavin Williamson's Global Top Trumps card game. Fun for all the family to get together and pick country against country just to find out which is the best. Including every country from Great Britain too. Gavin Williamson's Global Top Trumps for everyone whose worldview starts at home and doesn't go anywhere else. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.